We are going to look at the third church today, the third church in the book of Revelation. And I just want to encourage you as we come around the time of the word this morning. You know, the book of Revelation is actually a hopeful book. And often when we talk about Revelation, I know even as I said that, a few of you went, is it? Is it? Is it? Uh, When we talk about Revelation, perhaps you've come with certain expectations this morning about what we're going to talk about. Or perhaps you have a particular uh, picture in mind when we talk about the book of Revelation. And although this series isn't going to cover everything, we can't cover everything in this book. But it is actually a hopeful book. And let me tell you why. When John wrote this letter, when God spoke to John, the Apostle John, to write this letter, it was to seven churches in this area, in what was known as kind of Asia Minor at that time. In a time of great persecution and suffering for the church, in a time where the church was challenged, what did it mean to live out their lives as Christians in a world that was hostile to the gospel? And so God's response was to write a letter to them, and that letter is Revelation. And there are kind of within Revelation these seven letters to the seven churches, but in a lot of ways it's one letter to that whole group of churches who are in that area. And so it's important to keep in mind that God, when God sent his word, he didn't send his word in response to that situation to discourage people, to confuse people. He sent his word to give them direction and encouragement and support. And that's why today, 2,000 years later, you and I can open the book of Revelation and say, what did God say to them then and what is he saying to us today? So the book of Revelation is not meant to scare you. It's not meant to confuse you. It was designed to encourage the churches. There is a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation. And they wrote in a time, and you know, a great comparison for us in modern days to think about the persecution was so great that they were kind of almost writing in code. And think of it a little bit like this, if you've ever watched a movie or read a book about World War II, you might have heard about how they would send letters and if they were worried that, you know, the enemy would read those letters, they might write things in code or even during certain wars, they would actually have their mail checked. And, 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 you know, things would get censored so that, you know, if it got into enemy hands, the enemy wouldn't know what you were writing about. Soldiers could write home to their loved ones, but they had to be careful about what they were saying. And in the same way, John, when he's writing to these churches, he uses imagery and he substitutes words for different things because just in case, just in case the Roman Empire at that time, if anyone got that letter that it would not get them into more trouble. And so there's imagery there, but actually the, 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 the intention of the book of Revelation is to write to the churches and to speak words of hope. Words of hope that are hopeful for us today. If we look at Revelation 21, we just go a bit forward in the book of Revelation before we look at our letter today. In Revelation 21 and verses 3 to 5, this is how kind of the concluding statements, if you like, of Revelation Let me just read this to you so you can see that God didn't want to create fear in our hearts when he sent John to write the book of Revelation. It says, And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That was God's word at the end. He was looking forward to that time in eternity, the time that you and I will one day spend with him. And it's hopeful. And it's meant to remind us that no matter what we face, God's word for us today is a word of encouragement. Sometimes God's word challenges us. It's meant to. The letter that we're going to look to today challenges us, challenges the way that we live. But it was never meant to create fear. And so can I encourage you as we come around this time and I encourage you as well, if you didn't uh, listen to our first part of the series last week with Pastor Matt, you can go online and you can listen to that sermon. And Pastor Matt gives a great background as to what the church was experiencing at the time. But today we're going to look at the church of Pergamon in Revelation chapter 2. And so if you've got your Bibles this morning, would you turn to Revelation chapter 2? We're going to read from verse 12 onwards. Revelation chapter 2. So it's the third church, as Pastor Layton said, Pastor Alex is going to cover the second church next week because he's not feeling too good. But the third church, the church in Pergamum. That's a hard word to say. Say Pergamum. Pergamum. That's the church we're looking at. Here we go, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So this morning, I want to look at a little bit about that background, about what uh, is being said here as the Apostle John writes to this particular letter so you can understand what's going on. And then we're going to look at how it applies to us today. And if you listened to last week's sermon with Pastor Matt, he talked about how this was a time in the Roman Empire where the churches were suffering great persecution. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is that as the Roman Empire grew and it flourished, one of the big parts of the Roman Empire, their practice, was what we could call kind of the cult of the emperor, where they were expected to literally worship the leader who was in charge. Now, we have leaders today, we have government officials that we vote in or we vote out, and, uh, but we don't really revere them, do we? I mean, we might respect them, and, but actually in Australia, we kind of tend to just make fun of them if we like them. That's kind of how we show our love, isn't it? We show our love, we make memes, Pastor Layton's very good at memes, and we have our jokes about it, you know, Scott Morrison was ScoMo, 
Now we've got Anthony Albanese in his elbow. So people don't really, you know, if you're, if you're joining us from some uh, different uh, nation here today online, let me tell you, that's just the Australian way. It's how we show our love, particularly if you've got an O at the end of your name. That really means that we love that person. I've never personally received a nickname with an O at the end because it doesn't sound so good. Cat O, it doesn't sound good, but you know. But they expected, they expected that you would worship the emperor. They expected not just that you would respect the emperor, not just that you would somehow, you know, you'd men mention him or you'd, you'd show some kind of a, a sense of def uh, deference to the emperor, but you would worship him. And here's the thing, as Pastor Matt said last week, if you didn't do those things, you were kind of excluded from society. There was a whole part of life, social life, business life, practicing business, and as you went about your day-to-day -day life, that expected you to incorporate that worship into your day-to-day -day life. So it's a little bit hard for us to appreciate sometimes that that challenge for the church wasn't simply, you know, make sure that you show up on a certain day of the week and kind of go to a temple. But actually everything that they did, if they went to a business meeting and a lot of us are back at work on site now, no more Zoom work, now we're back, no more work from home. And you might go into a work meeting now and they put out the muffins and the pastries and the coffee and you sit down and you have your meeting. And part of that meeting, if you were in the Roman Empire in that time, would be that you would worship the emperor and you would eat food that had been offered to idols and so it wasn't just something that took a small place in their life it kind of had seeped through every part of what it meant to live in the Roman Empire and Pergamum this church that John writes to was one of the big cities it was a key city in that time it was one of the major cities of what you might say was the world in that time. It was like saying they were living in somewhere like London or New York. It was a big city. It was a key city. People traveled to that city and through that city. And so there were people coming and going. And so John writes to this church, and it's not a church that's tucked away in a kind of quiet regional area, but everything that could happen in the empire happened in Pergamum. You couldn't avoid it, in other words. Everything every part, every good part of the empire, every bad part of the empire found its way into this major city. And John writes to the church that is doing its best to live in this city. But here's a couple other facts about this city. This city was also very popular because it had a massive temple constructed to the god Zeus. And if you Google it, you can see there's a museum in Berlin where they've reconstructed it. They've rebuilt it, what they believe it looked like. And it is impressive even by today's standards. It was huge. They actually had a number of temples dedicated to a number of gods. Zeus, Athena. They also had this kind of healing center that was dedicated to health and wellness and all sorts of cultic practices took place there. But people would come and travel to this city for all of that kind of religious experience. So you can imagine it's a big city. Emperor worship is part of their day-to-day -day life. Eating food that was offered to idols was a constant temptation because if you said no when someone offered you food, it was very noticeable. It's not quite the same as when someone says to you, have one of the pastries at the office morning tea, and you say, no thanks, I'm trying to watch my weight, bit of lockdown kilos. It wasn't like that. People would say, well, why won't you eat that food? 
Why we eat the food that's been offered to our God that we worship? What's wrong with you? There was a lot of pressure on them. And on top of that, this city was kind of this religious center of all these other religions. And so the church is doing its best in Pergamum in this time to live their life as Christians. And they're being persecuted. And we see from these verses that one of them, Antipas, by the sounds of it, was actually killed because he made a stand for his faith. So it got real, real quick for the people in Pergamon. This wasn't a theory. This was their lives. And so that's why I say that when we look at the book of Revelation, we shouldn't come to it with fear because God spoke to them at that time with their particular challenges and he had a word for them. And today, you and I, as we come to church and we've come and we've enjoyed our time of worship, but today you and I, we've come into this place. And if you're joining us online, you've come to this service today and you've got your own challenges and you've got your own things that are going on in your life. But God, just as he had a word for the church in Pergamon then, God has a word for you today. God wants to speak to us today. Can I share with you a couple of key thoughts this morning about what God wants to say to us, what he said to the church then and what he wants to say to us today. And the first one is that God knows where you live. I love this. It says in verse 13, I know where you live. That's the words of Jesus to the church. I know where you live. Now, if you listened to the sermon last week, you would have noticed that that letter to the church starts off with, I know your deeds, I know your actions, I know what you've done. But this time, Jesus says to the church, I know where you live. Just think about that. There's an intimacy with knowing where someone lives, right? We don't just give out our home address to just anybody, at least I hope not. We don't just tell people where we live, we tell people that we trust where we live. It takes time to build the kind of relationship where we would invite someone over to our house and now they know where we live. And we have a bit of a saying here in Australia, don't we, that, you know, as a sign that we trust people, we might say, well, I might lend something to to Ailey, for example, and I'll get it back to you and I'll say, well, that's fine, I know where you live. In other words, there's trust, I know where you live. I know where you live. I remember when I was uh, first dating my husband, uh, Noaf, I remember when he invited me to his new house to come and have a look at his new house. And I knew it was serious then because he'd invited me over to his house. It was a turning point in our relationship. When you invite someone to your house, when you know where someone lives, it says something about the nature of the relationship that you have with them. And so Jesus says to this church, this church that is suffering, this church that is facing challenges, the first thing that he says to them is, I know where you live. I know where you live. In other words, I'm intimately acquainted with what is going on in your life. I know where you live. He knows where you live, but he goes on and says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And a lot of people think that's alluding to all the different temples that were uh, erected in that place, in that city. He was saying, I know. In other words, Jesus was saying to them, I know the challenges that you're facing. I know where you live. I know exactly what kind of place that is. It's a little bit like when we tell people which suburb we live in, you know. Some people, they kind of, they've got a bit of a ranking system of whether or not they think you're living in a good suburb or not. And Jesus is saying to them, hey, Hey, I know where you live. 
I know Pergamum. This is not a theory. I'm not just saying I kind of, I know, I've been there. I know where you live. I know exactly what's going on in your city. I know where you live. I know the challenges. I know exactly what you are going through. That's the first thing that Jesus says to this church who is suffering. The first words are words of hope. I know where you live. I know what's going on. And so today as we look at this letter, as today we come around it 2,000 years later, we can be encouraged that God also says to us, I know where you live. I know what your world's like. I know the challenges you face. I know tomorrow when you get up and you go to work. I know. I know exactly what it's like. I know tomorrow when you get up and you go to school or you go to university. I know. I know where you live. For some of you who are here today, God is saying to you, I know where you live. I know what home you're returning to today. I know where you live. I know the challenges you face. We have a God who knows us who knows us intimately, who has not just a passing connection with us, but has put his spirit in us, knows us intimately and knows where we live, knows the place that we go to week in, week out, knows the challenges that we face week in, week out. God knows your situation. Today, if you take nothing else from what I'm saying, let me encourage you with this. God knows where you're at. God sees you. God sees your challenges. God sees the things that are on your heart. God sees you when you pray. God sees you when you cry out to him and say, God, would you give me wisdom in this? God sees you. God knows where you live. He knows where we live. I know where you live. God knows where we live. Number two, God calls us to a different life. He says, I know where you live. I know the challenges. But, but Jesus calls his church to a different life. He says, but I have this against you. And he begins to talk about Balaam. And, uh, and we might read that today and think, what, what's he talking about? And Balaam is actually a reference to the Old Testament. Some of you might remember there's a story of, of uh, Balaam. In the Old Testament, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers. And Balak asked Balaam, who was a prophet, but not one of God's prophets, to speak curses over Israel. And five times Balaam goes and he looks out over Israel, who's living in the wilderness and camped out in the wilderness. And it's an incredible story. And you can find the story of Balaam from about Numbers chapter 21 through to 25. And and Balak... He's against the people of Israel and he wants to curse them. He wants them to get out because he's heard. He's heard that God is making a way and taking them to the promised land. And so he hires Balaam to prophesy and a curse over the people of Israel. But every time that Balaam opens his mouth, he can't help but bless Israel despite what he wants to do. Five times he gives it a real good go and it doesn't work. I don't know if you've ever tried something and failed a couple of times. Balaam really gave it a good go. He tried it five times and every time he opens his mouth, he says nothing but good things. And so he tries. The temptation first comes. The opposition first comes from outside. But then we find out a little bit later in the book of Numbers 
in Numbers 25 that Balak gets together some women who are not Jewish from a different nation and he says to them, why don't you marry into this community and then you can distract them from what God wants for them. And the women come and they bring and they have a plan and they kind of infiltrate the camp if you like. And they begin to lead Israel astray with different practices and turn them towards other gods. And so Israel resists one temptation, one challenge, which comes obviously from outside. But then Balaam has a great idea, and it's to infiltrate them from within. And it's their undoing. And so Jesus says to the church in Pergamon, I know, I know where you live. I know the challenges. I know the external challenges, but I have this against you. You've gone the way of Balaam. In other words, there's something within your community that you need to look to. There's something that's crept in. There's a challenge that's crept in. It doesn't seem that much of a challenge, but it's there and you've got to address it. And so that's the reference there. And what he's saying is the temptation had come from within that we can still be Christians, but maybe we should compromise with a few things. It's hard to live in the Roman Empire. Sometimes people do offer you food, offer to idols. And people had begun to speak. Like Balaam, there were other prophets who'd begun to speak into the church saying, it's okay. <laughs> you can be a Christian, but kind of do these things too. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's a, it's a challenge. You know, don't stress yourself out. Just do what you have to do. And Jesus comes and says, and he reminds the church that despite their suffering, He's saying to them, you know what? You still need to follow my ways. You still need to stay true to me. I have this against you. I know where you live. I know your challenges. But despite your suffering, let me tell you, you were called to a different life. Today, you and I face challenges. Maybe we don't face the challenge of eating food offered to idols, but we do have our own challenges we do have the same kind of challenge, the same kind of challenge whether or not we will assimilate to the culture around us or whether we will live the different life that God has called us to live. You know, the truth is sometimes it creeps in. That's what Jesus was saying. Just like Balaam, sometimes it creeps in from within and we tell ourselves this thing is okay and this small compromise is okay and that small compromise is okay. But Jesus is calling the church to rise up despite opposition, despite the fact that they find themselves kind of not the norm, but somehow the, the minority culture. They find themselves in the minority with their beliefs. And Jesus is saying, despite all that, I call you to rise up and to live a different life. That's the challenge for us today. The challenge for us today is, will we assimilate to the culture around us or will we live the different life that we've been called to live? The task for us today is to discern the idols of our time and to resist them. What are the idols of our time? They faced food offered to idols and sexual immorality. Those were their challenges. Those were their specific challenges. We have our specific challenges. And as I look around the room today, many of you come from different cultures, different places, different backgrounds, and all of us have our different challenges. But the challenge, the broader challenge for every Christian, and here's what's encouraging for us today. If you're struggling with this, let me tell you, this is not a new struggle. 
That's why we can read this today and we can be encouraged. The early church also struggled with this. Today, we have to actually struggle and make a decision that we're going to live a different life. We're going to be called to a different way of living. We're actually going to say no to those things. For us, the idols are different. For us in the West, the idols are materialism. For us, the idols are wanting to avoid a difficult life at all costs. And yet Jesus tells us that to follow him is to take up our cross, is to be challenged, is to be different, is to face persecution sometimes. But yet he says to us, I know where you live. I know. I know. I know where you live, and I'm going to be victorious at the end, but I call you to a different life. Let me encourage you as you face a new week this week, whatever your week looked like last week, you can make a decision. God, I thank you that you've called me to a different life. God, I thank you that you've called me to be different. And I make a commitment today, God, that I will follow you and your ways no matter what the world says. No matter what anyone else says, we are called to a different life. You know, the other thing that I want to encourage you about is that the early church understood their mandate to be a witness to the gospel. Even in hardship. You know, we are called to a different life. And you know, actually witnessing to the power of the gospel is actually an act of resistance itself. Have you thought about that? We live in an age, and that church lived in an age, where people believed that the gospel was not powerful, that it would not change lives, and that one day it would just die away. They, they faced that same threat. The Roman Empire believed that no one could be better than them. The Roman Empire believed nothing could ever come against them. And this little band of Christians, no matter how many people they tell, it was never going to last. It was never going to outrun the Roman Empire. And they would boast that they could reach the ends of the earth. But Jesus came and he declared in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that he would give us his spirit and we would be witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And so when we proclaim his gospel, despite the challenges, when we decide to be faithful and say, I'm going to tell people the good news about Jesus Christ, we are actually making a decision to stand apart and say, no, I believe that the gospel changes lives. The gospel changed your life. The gospel changed my life. And so we actually need to make a decision, church, despite the fact what everyone else might say, that we're going to go into all the world and preach the good news, baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are called to a different life. Number three, God calls us not to hide. Jesus said, I know where you live. I know it's difficult. But he does not call us to hide. We can make the mistake of thinking that, that in the challenge of wanting to assimilate to the culture around us, that we should kind of just step aside. We should hide away. The only way to be a Christian today is just to remove ourselves from everything. You know, and as a parent, I feel that. I feel the fears that many of you feel as we look around in the world today, and I wonder what kind of world will my children grow up in? I look forward and I think, what's it going to, if it's like this now, what's it going to be in the future? But actually, God doesn't call us to hide. Let me share with you Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. I know Pastor Matt 
I shared on this briefly last week, but I want to pick it up again today. Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way. In the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, I was looking at this passage recently, just a, uh, about a month ago, and I was meditating on this. And you know, salt, here's the thing about salt. Uh, salt is meant to be used in small quantities. Now, bear with me here. I know some of you like to be heavy-handed with salt in your cooking. And I'm no chef, but salt is not meant to be the dominant ingredient in any recipe, right? Like you're supposed to taste the other flavor. Salt at its best operates when it's one of the minority ingredients. And there are a whole bunch of other ingredients, but the salt brings out the flavor. If you tip, if you, anyone ever tried cooking and accidentally tipped too much salt into something, it's all right, you can be real here. Just lift your hand if you're online, put it in the chat. It's a safe place. We've all done it. Put too much salt in our recipe. It's a disaster. Salt's never meant to overpower. Salt is only ever meant to complement. Salt is meant to be the minority ingredient in a whole sea of other ingredients. <laughs> Just think about that for a moment. And Jesus calls us the salt. <laughs> and our prayer is often that we would be the majority ingredient when God is saying, hello, you are called to be the salt. You're not called to be the dominant ingredient. You're called to be. I'm sending you to be the minority ingredient, surrounded by a whole lot of other flavors. But here's the thing. When you put salt into food, when you add it into the recipe, it brings out the best of everything else. And God says of us, do not be discouraged when you look around at your workplace tomorrow or your university tomorrow or your school tomorrow and you feel like there are a whole lot of other flavors out there and then there's little old me. That's good. Now you're being the salt. We're not called to hide. We're called to be the salt. Salt was also a preservative. They didn't have fridges in those days and freezers and the ability to heat things up in the microwave. Quite frankly, I wouldn't have survived. Um, and so they would take meat and they would rub salt into the meat to preserve it. Salt was a preservative against decay. Here's the thing. We don't ask why the meat goes bad if you don't put salt in it. Because meat goes bad. That's the nature of meat. If you've ever left meat out, tried to defrost a chicken and forgot about it on a warm day, you know, or at least I hope you know, that you should not eat it. Because <laughs> it goes bad. Anyone ever eaten bad chicken? That's a whole other topic. We won't go into that. But we know. We know what happens. You see, but meat is meant to decay. That's the nature of meat. The nature of salt is to act as a preservative. And so often as Christians, our complaint to God is, why is the meat, why is the culture decaying when God is saying, your job is the salt? Don't ask why the meat is decaying. Ask, where is the salt? Don't ask, where is the light when it's dark? 
darkness occurs. Don't ask why is it dark, dark, but rather ask where is the light? Can I read you a quote from Christopher Wright, a theologian? He says this, when we look at what it means to live as salt and as light in this world, we shouldn't be asking why is the world decaying? We should be asking this, he says, where are the Christians? Where are the saints who will actually live as saints? God's different people, God's counterculture in the public square. Where are those who see their missions as God's people to live and work and witness in the marketplace and pay the cost of doing so. We aren't called to hide. We're called to be the salt and the light. So tomorrow when you go to work and you find yourself kind of the odd one out, tomorrow when you go to school, you go to university, you go about your day and you find that you are the one that's outnumbered, God says to you, be encouraged. I know where you live and I have called you to be the salt and the light. I have called you to light up the darkness. I have called you to be a preservative in a place that is decaying. Don't ask why it's decaying. Ask what you can do. Ask how you can be a salt. Ask how you can be a light. God has equipped us You know, we're Pentecostal Christians. God has equipped us to witness with signs and with wonders. I think about Joseph, who God used with signs and wonders to witness to those who did not know him. God used the spiritual gifts of Joseph to interpret the dreams of who? Of Pharaoh. God used Joseph. God used Elisha to heal Naaman, someone who didn't believe in God, but God used his spiritual gifts to reach someone who did not know him. How can God use you? God has not called us to hide. That's God's word to the church in Pergamum. He says, I know where you live, but I have this against you. Be strong. Don't compromise, but don't hide either. Finally, finally, Jesus leaves this encouragement to the church. It's a great encouragement to us today. He leaves this encouragement of three gifts. He says to the ones that persevere, the ones that understand what it is to be called to be a Christian in this complicated world, I will give three things. Manna, a white stone, and a new name. I love that that God says, I will give you manna. Their challenge was to give up food that they shouldn't be eating. And so God says, if you would persevere, I'll give you food. Manna was the food that God gave to the people of Israel in the wilderness when they needed food. And so, so Jesus says to the church, as you stay strong, as you don't compromise, As you resist those things, understand, don't worry, I will provide that same thing for you in a different way. God sees us. God sees where we live. Today, if you're joining us online, God sees you. God knows where you live. God knows your challenges. If you would stay faithful, He promises to give us what we need. They needed manna. God said, I'm giving you manna. To us today, God says, as you stay strong, as you stay in the Word, As you stay faithful to God in this season, God will give you what you need. The second thing He promises us is a white stone. And white stones were really um, represented kind of acceptance. And it was also what they would use, juries would use to, to render a verdict. 
they were deciding between guilty or not guilty, they would have a black stone and they would have a white stone. And the white stone would say not guilty. And so Jesus is reminding the church in Pergamum and he's reminding the church today. He's reminding us today that when we follow him, we're not always gonna get it right. We are flawed, we are sinners. We don't always make the right decisions. But His promise to us is if we stay faithful, He has a white stone. In other words, we've already been accepted into the kingdom of God. We've already been declared innocent, not because of what we've done, but because of what He has done for us. And we can be encouraged. Maybe we didn't do so well last week, but praise God, we have a white stone. We've been accepted into His kingdom. And that encourages us to keep going, to keep faithful to stay faithful to His Word. He gives us a white stone. And finally, He gives us a new name. The Bible is famous for giving new names. Abram became Abraham. Simon became Peter. We may not get a literal change of name, but God speaks a different name over us. Do you know that God speaks a different name over you? Whatever other names others speak over you, God speaks a new name. The church in Pergamon would have been frightened. The church in Pergamon would have felt like the walls were closing in. They would have felt like, God, what have you done? Why have you placed us here? God, can't you take us to a new place? And there would have been many people who would have said different things to those members of those churches. Just like today, you and I, as we're called not to hide, but to go into the world, to go into witness to the good news. Sometimes we receive things that are spoken over us. Sometimes people say things about us that are not true, but praise God, God gives us a new name. Can I tell you some of the new names that He has given us? He calls us His ambassadors. He calls us His disciples. He calls us His friends. He calls us children of God and heirs to the promise. We've been given a new name. Today, whatever you're facing, you can carry those promises with you. Would you stand with me, church, this morning as we close in prayer? I'm gonna ask the worship team to come and to join me this morning. Just as God spoke to the church in Pergamum, just as He spoke to them and He said to them, He knows where they live. Today, He knows where we live. He knows. God knows the challenges we face. In Hebrews, it says, we have a high priest who faced the same temptations as we did, yet He did not sin. He knows. He knows where you live. He goes before you today. And He promises us that if we would take up the challenge, the challenge to live a different life, to live the life of a member of the kingdom of God, to not hide our faith despite the challenges, there's a promise for us. There's a promise that He will give us what we need. There's a promise that we've already been accepted. There's a promise that He calls us by a new name.